All right, we are back. Let's talk about some things that are good and bad and ugly. One thing that's always struck me as sometimes good, but mostly bad and usually ugly, is the fact that the world's population continues to grow. Excellent op-ed piece in Los Angeles Times and later elsewhere from Mary Ellen Hart, co-author of Cool the Earth, Save the Economy, and Ann Ehrlich, senior research scientist at Stanford, with some contribution apparently from their spouses, John Hart and Paul Ehrlich, making all of them biologists involved in the study of climate change and sustainability. Well, they were just pointing out the fact that the world's biggest problem is that we have too many people. The issue of the world's overpopulation has... um, Sort of been in the deep freeze for about three decades now, ever since the beginning of the Reagan presidency, when uh, representing the U.S. government at the World Overpopulation Conference in Mexico City was Catholic conservative New York Senator James Buckley, brother of CIA agent and founder of National Review magazine William F. Buckley. As the world awaited to see what the U.S. uh, would say about world overpopulation, James Buckley informed the gathering that the U.S. didn't think it was a problem. Of course, this may be time to give this a second look now that we're realizing that the climate is changing. And there are probably fewer greater obstacles in doing something about it than the fact that uh, we have people everywhere moving into marginal lands, chopping down trees, trying to feed themselves. It's not a topic that just gets very much play and hasn't for some time, although its importance has not diminished. Paul Ehrlich at Stanford was pilloried for years over the, um, well, the unfortunate predictions he made in his book, The Population Bomb, back in the 1970s, that there would be famines everywhere. Well, thanks to the Green Revolution and some breakthroughs in various areas, that did not materialize on schedule. But you have to ask, how many people can we pile into this phone booth before, before things are going to go south? As it is, we're seeing desertification everywhere. Thanks to, you know, bad human influences. Not to say there's not some rays of hope in all this, but uh, we are not seeing an improvement. I shudder when I think of... Uh, uh, National Geographic special on a couple years ago showing what it looked like near the Gombe Stream Reserve in Tanzania where Jane Goodall's been studying chimps for so many years. When she started studying the chimps back in the 1960s, there was rainforest for miles all around the reserve. And now what's left is the reserve. But noted, Mary Ellen Hart and Ann Ehrlich in this piece, that uh, people may talk about the crazy weather, they may be talking a little bit about climate change now, thank goodness, but population? Get out. Way too inconvenient a truth. Take National Public Radio, they pointed out. Of NPR's sparse record of population pieces, just one or two actually address unsustainable population growth. But as the political right whittles away at family planning clinics across the nation, the latest NPR series, The Baby Project, devotes a plethora of articles to pregnancy. With the most serious subjects, the problems some women have conceiving and birthing. If there's even a hint of too many babies, it's well hidden. This, even though a 2009 NPR story on U.S. pregnancies reported that half, yes, half of all U.S. pregnancies are unintended. They went on to note, and that's what the right calls the liberal side of the mass media. 
The politically conservative U.S. mass media cover unsustainable population levels even less, which pretty much reflects the appalling state of U.S. public education today on population. The U.S. approach to population issues across all levels of government in terms of such things as education, a tax on family planning, and tax deductions for children is an exercise in thoughtlessness. Women are culturally conditioned daily to welcome the idea of having children, plural, not one or none. How to support those children economically is not discussed. Indeed, our abysmal lack of adolescent sex education programs ensures there'll be plenty of young women who secure their destinies and those of their babies to brutal poverty and shorten lives through unwanted pregnancies and lack of choice. They go on. Globally, the effects of overpopulation play a part in practically every daily report of mass human calamity. But the word population is rarely mentioned. Wildfires threaten ever more people because expanding populations are moving nearer and into forests. Floods inundate more homes as populations expand into floodplains. Such extreme events are stoked by climate change fueled by increasing carbon emissions from an expanding global population. This is a topic we will return to, but, you know, they do have a point. As we see uh, our economy continuing to sputter in the United States... People are just upset about the fact that we can't get back to building more homes, damn it. I mean, it worked so well before, right, to keep building like there's no tomorrow? Case in point, July 22nd article in the Sacramento Bee titled, Area Growth Hits New Low. Subheadline, only 2,700 building permits pulled in 2010, census shows. Article by Philip Reese quotes, Roseville-based Market Perspectives, uh, President John Schleimer saying, a lot of the construction guys have gone into other fields or left the area. To which I say, good. Although I would hasten to add that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. But back to speaking for myself, good. These old models of things getting better by having more streets and more street lights and more people paying sewage tax and, you know, grow, 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 not a strategy that works indefinitely. I'm not sure it works at all sometimes looking around what's happened to California. We'll return to that topic, but I, I cannot resist mentioning uh, this, all this talk about how much water California has right now, which, which we do. It was an extremely wet year, but uh, there was a special to the bee last month from Jim Beck, who was described as general manager of the Kern County Water Agency, which was basically a lot of blah, blah, blah about the Bay Delta Conservation Plan. Mr. Beck said that the solution on the horizon to the problems they have in Kern County of not enough water is the Bay Delta Conservation Plan, and federal, state, and local leaders must continue working to ensure it succeeds. Well, part of its goal is to protect the Delta and another part of its goal is how to take more water out of the Delta. And if someone can write this program, please, and explain to us how you can improve the fisheries and improve the Delta by taking more water out of it, well, then we might be willing to agree with people like Jim Beck, who, by the way, in his uh, discussion about the water needs of Kern County, fails to mention the fact revealed on Radio Parallax that something like 10% of the water that gets to Kern County gets pumped into the ground by oil companies to extract the heavy crude that's located in that part of California. And yes, they'd like good, high-quality drinking water to stick in those pumps because if they use lousy water, the pumps get gummed up a lot easier. Cost them more money, you know? 
By the way, I don't want to be too hard on the Sacramento Bee. The McClatchy organization is uh, d- does some does some great work uh, in reporting, investigative reporting, which becoming an endangered species. But uh, the Economist was playing this game too, talking about American home builders and how to survive a five-year slump. Blah blah. I don't get it. Clearly, our crazy housing market crashed the U.S. economy. Who's in a big hurry to get back into having a crazy housing market? And by the way, California's effort to move its primary up and therefore make itself more relevant and see more uh, campaign visits here and more money spent here in California was a miserable failure. In spite of Arnold Schwarzenegger's assurance, this would make us more relevant. Nope, they're moving the primary back to, to coincide with our Uh, elections which normally take place in June. They'll all be together. We will not spend the extra $100 million to hold an early primary for the presidential race. We do hope this gives people some pause before they uh, implement this cockamamie, crazy idea of awarding California's electoral votes to the national popular winner. And as follow-up on this issue of how to steal elections, we refer you to a video at www.forbiddenknowledgetv.com, which involves a sworn oath deposition from a software programmer who testifies that U.S. elections can be rigged and that a U.S. representative tried to pay him to rig their election vote count. It's, a, it's compelling watching. We recommend you pull this up on the Internet. And no, we can't explain why this isn't page one news across America. All right, a couple months back, we traveled down to Hollywood, California, USA to interview a legend in the entertainment business, actor, director, producer, Norman Lloyd. We'd aired segments previously. Mr. Lloyd talked about his uh, working relationship with Orson Welles, Alfred Hitchcock, and Charlie Chaplin. Here's some more of that wide-ranging, fascinating chat. We do apologize for the bit of the background noise, which came from the legendary Musso Frank's restaurant on Hollywood Boulevard, Hollywood's oldest restaurant. Question about the old, the old Hitchcock television program. It certainly had a, it had to be sort of Hitchcockian, if there's such a word, I guess, to have that flavor of his sort of macabre, I guess, woven into it. And were you given a sort of a free hand as to how to do that, or did he have some, was some fixed ideas as to how to proceed? You absorbed it. Hitch had a feeling. It had to be a certain kind of story. It had to have, above all, at the start, a twist at the end. Right. You had, right. This was the distinctive feature of the show, a twist. Then you had to have suspense. That would build to the twist. And some of them had comedy and some didn't. Above all. You needed to spend. Hitch was lending the comedy with the leaders, but the stories. And you know, we started out with the half hour doing thirty-nine of them a season. Wow. The two elements of the twist and suspense, not detective story. We wouldn't do de- detective story. Okay. Or straight murder story. It okay. had to have suspense, which is the same with Hitch. His pictures are suspense pictures. I must say yeah. that. Jean Renoir was an experience. Both Wells and Chaplin thought he was the number one man. Because there's something he would get on the screen of humanitarianism about people. You never had a sense that it was staged. You had a feeling that he was really capturing a life. He was intellectually an avant-garde person, 
who had a great feeling for humanity. And France, you really knew France if you looked at a Renoir film. The interesting story about him is, he was in World War I, he was badly wounded. They were going to amputate his leg, his mother, who was the wife of Pierre-Auguste Renoir, the great painter. His father was the great painter. His mother saved his life, she wouldn't let them amputate. Although Jean had a limp all his life, and as a matter of fact, that wound kicked up in the last years of his life. It's a strange thing. He was recuperating. He had been, this was 1919 or so, he had been a ceramicist. As a matter of fact, I have at home a wonderful pot he did in ceramics. And he had to rest. He couldn't do anything. While he put this leg up and he watched this new thing called movies. 1919. And he became intrigued with it. So when he got well enough, he decided he was going to try it. And everyone said, no, Renoir, son of the great painter, he's going to get a free ticket. All he'll do is imitate his father. So he said, all through my career, I made certain that I could never be accused of imitating my father, particularly pictorially and as well. In the last year of his life, or a year and a half, he wanted to see all his films, which he had on 16 millimeter, and he ran them in his home. And my wife and I happened to be up there, see, we used to go up Sundays and look at them with him. Mm -hmm. We were there the day that he ran the 50th of his films, the last of the film. Because mm -hmm. he had seen all his films over again, over a period of a year. And then he told the story of not trying to imitate his father. He said, I've looked at these 50 pictures now, and I realized that all during these 50 years, I was trying to imitate my father. <laughs> that was quite a moment in an old man. Yeah. I say that. He was beautiful. He was a beautiful man. Rules of the Game is always up there with Citizen Kane. Is I finally saw it a few months ago, and I... I, I was impressed. It was it, it's quite a film. He plays the lead in it. He couldn't get the money. His brother was to play the lead. His brother was a hell of an actor, Pierre Renoir. And he couldn't get the money. So Pierre came to him one day and said, I can't wait any longer. I gotta go to work. <laughs> Went to work on something else and Jean played the part. And he's great in it. You know, it's just it's what a privilege to be able to speak with a legendary actor producer, director like Norman Lloyd about these people he knew personally, including Charlie Chaplin. One thing this correspondent had always heard, we didn't, I don't think Mr. Lloyd would have known about this, so I, I, I'm just as well I didn't ask him about it, but I'd always heard that at some point Charlie Chaplin entered a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest and took third. And while I was tempted to tell that story uh, on this program, it occurred to me that I really should check out on Snopes or somewhere to see if it was if it's true and uh, to make a long story short it is to quote from Snopes.com claim Charlie Chaplin once lost a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest status true origins as Chaplinitis swept across America around 1915 Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest became a popular form of entertainment 
Actually, the competitions were really contests to see who would imitate the Tramp character, popularized by Chaplin, since few people would have recognized him without his familiar costume, mustache, and makeup. A rising young actor named Bob Hope once took first prize in one such contest in Cleveland. Legend has it that Chaplin himself once entered and lost one of these competitions. It's usually said it was held in Monte Carlo or Switzerland, and that he came in second or third. Well, Chaplin did indeed fare poorly in a Chaplin lookalike contest, but the competition took place in a San Francisco theater. His final standing was not recorded, although it was noted that he failed even to make the finals. Chaplin told a reporter at this time that he was tempted to give lessons in the Chaplin walk out of pity as well as the desire to see things done correctly. That's pretty cool because The Tramp, as we talked about in this program more than once, was filmed in my hometown, then Niles, now known as Fremont, California, at the mouth of Niles Canyon. Charlie made pictures for a couple months in the spring of 1915 in Niles, and that was where the Tramp character really came together in the movie of that name, The Tramp. He doesn't get the girl in the picture. In the end, he sort of does what Chaplin did so well. Sort of wistfully pull himself together and march off to face uh, what, uh, what fate might bring him. And that, uh, that closing of the movie where it, he sort of walks off up into Niles Canyon as um, the scene closes out really was the solidification of that character of the Tramp. So I'm wondering if, uh, if in that 1915 contest held in nearby San Francisco, he just made the trip over from Niles. That part will require some further research. We're going to go to David Keene of the uh, Niles SNA uh, Film Museum to see if he can't answer that question for us. But at any rate, let's uh, take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. 